Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Where did Rollins go? Yay! Uh, he's, he's been up on the table all night long. Where'd he go now? He's back there looking at me all creepy. Yeah, he's, our, he's, our little he, boy. He's such a stalker. He is creepy sometimes. He is creepy. <laughs> he just looks at you from afar. Yeah, I know. I'll be like, I'll, I'll be <laughs> walking in the, out to the kitchen and, get and he'll just be in some corner staring at it's me. It's our like, cat, by the way. It's not like a kid. It's like straight up like <laughs> serial killer horror movie stuff. It's like, yeah. oh, God. Yeah, that's our... Our older cat. Um, I think we mentioned the last time we did a show that we um, we rescued. Is that the word you can use? Yeah. We rescued. Found a kitten in the backyard. Found a kitten in the backyard. Yeah. And I think the last time we talked, we didn't really have a name for yeah, her Yeah, she's yet. named Binks now. She's named Binks now. Which anybody out there knows. That's from Hocus Pocus. But we yeah, found her in October. and Right she's before we got married. Just, yeah. Uh, it just kind of fits. And of course, I'm already calling her Binkers. Binkers. Binksy. Yeah. Um, She's growing uh, leaps and bounds, and she's getting a lot more confidence. And just to illustrate, she stays with me during the day in my home office while I'm working, and I just kind of let her roam the office. I guess we're kind of what I mean. That's what we're doing, Amber. Slowly, just kind of letting her get more and more freedom as time goes on. And that's why, you know, every week I just kind of give her a little bit more that she can do. But during the day, she stays with me at the office, which she is uh, getting more and more rambunctious every day, it seems like. Uh, and she's knocking over, knocking my laptop lid down as much as she can now <laughs> and doing all kinds of stuff. But, just, but it's fun. She's, uh, she's growing up quick, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's never, your ghostly talk pet update. Never read, no, I'm sorry, never, never have raised a kitten before. Okay. And I am exhausted. They're little psychos. I am exhausted. It's wearing me the hell um, out. You know what does not exhaust me? Oh, dude. Steve Ward. Steve Ward, I can talk to and listen to forever. He's, he was, sometimes I get, I don't. He really is one of our favorite I don't want to say intimidated. Uh, sometimes I get anxiety about interviews that we do because I worry my brain's not going to have the right question at the right time. And we try to like keep keep our show going sort of in real time as we do interviews. It's not like, oh, wait, let's edit that and let's chop this out. Well, and we just don't like that. We don't like I, it. I, I don't like to edit. To I like, I like the things organic and, and with this thing. And I, so you're like when I'm doing research on someone or taking notes and trying to think of stuff like, you know, how to engage this person in an interesting, hopefully interesting conversation. I know with Steve, I don't need to do all that research. Because Steve is just press play. Well, we all know each other, too. And, well, we know Steve. Yeah, and that always helps. But you press play, and Steve tells you amazing things. And often while I'm listening to Steve, I'm constantly taking notes because he tells me a thousand new books that I need to buy. Or there's some new name I need to go check out and look up. Some new story. Or he reminds me about something I forgot that I needed to look up, like, a year ago. And Steve's just awesome. He's, is, he knows everything. Yeah, and it's so does. funny because yeah. when we got off the show tonight, we were talking about how we take notes in books and stuff and how often we forget what we read. And I'm like, Steve, there's no way you can forget what you read <laughs> <laughs> because, like, just the stuff he remembers, it's insane. So tonight um, – oh, also, I do want to mention because I love when this happens. I'm not going to say his name, but I want to give a shout-out to a listener that found us. He used to listen to us back in the day, and he sent us an email and said – like, hey, you guys are awesome. You helped me through some bad times uh, back in, like, the mid-O's. Yeah. And I love when listeners of the show from back in the day go, oh, they're back. Yeah. 
holy cow, like, where did they come from? Because there's so many we people. We get those every once in a while, and that's yeah, cool. because obviously we came back in an ocean of podcasts, so what are you, you going to do? Yeah, it's hard we're to not, find We're not stuff. the only show on the internet anymore. And we're not necessarily really putting a high beacon up no, these days either. No, it's, it's, we, We've talked about how we suck at social media, and I have no interest in social media. And, and I, I, I guess I'm sucky, I guess. Unless we get content. Well, there's, there's, <laughs> well, I, I guess there's something, they, what, what they call it now is like, uh, you know, monetizing something, right? Well, you no. Know, and you I guess want... that means you get out advertisers. So, and I'm, I don't think it, uh, us having Manscaped ads in between, like every 15 minutes on this show would. Yeah, would why, make... what is with podcast and radio all having the same ads? Well, there's the same, they're the same, they're the same companies that just target the podcast I market, guess. I guess. Manscaped. It's um, Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club. Wait. Was it Blue Bonnet? Was it was for a while. I heard Blue Bonnet ads all yeah, the time. Yeah, the meal delivery kits. So, I mean, I, I, I. I we're I, and the only way I can say it really is if we're they want to send me meal delivery kits, or I that, will that, advertise. Actually, we should for that them. be kind of cool. Yeah, we could, <laughs> I, I, will, I will advertise. Would you guys mind if we had Blue Bind as a sponsor <laughs> for the show? Because not really, and we wouldn't even be getting money, they'd just be no, sending us meals. I don't need to be paid. You can we would just send they, me would, food. they would send us food. <laughs> would, let, send us an email if you're cool with that. If um, someone is may, connected with that. Promotion? Yeah, if you work for Blue Bonnet or you know somebody who works for Blue Bonnet, just yeah, tell them that we'd like to do an ad thing on our show for, with them, maybe. But I don't. Th- they'll, they'll give you like, you know, you'll get a discount. They'll be like, "Ghostly Talk Ten and get ten percent off your first order." You know, like how, how do you? Yeah, so, yes, yes. And, then, with, and then, sh- then they see that no one. Ghostly Talk. They see that no one from Ghostly Talk ever utilized that coupon, so they like they know. Damn the, it, that's worthless. Crap, these people are. <laughs> The two I don't people know. that listen to the what, show what did not actually, buy this. What do you actually advertise on a show like this? And you know, I, I probably sound like a total, total buckethead saying that because I don't really listen. I, I'm sorry. I listen to I listen to a handful of other smaller podcasts, but they're this, they're kind of the same as we are. Um, they don't really advertise. They're really they're small no. podcasts like we are. I don't really. I guess I don't listen to the bigger podcasts. What what's the one? Was it? Is it what I really don't like? I don't want to say their name, Amber. I don't I really they, don't like. No, them. they all have just like any radio thing. They all have a sponsor. They or just something, have their which is cool. Dollar Shave Club or super cool Manscape because that's great. Like that's great because Ghost Hunters shave their stuff Do- too. Yeah, or people that are into the paranormal shave their. I don't stuff Dollar also. Shave. You're making it sound like Dollar Shave Clubs only for like. No, no, I'm talking. I'm talking Manscape. I'm, I'm talking about Manscape. Manscape. That's all I hear. They're like, oh, man, you gotta shave your. your, 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 your. Oh, where's this go? This is going weird. We got it. We got it. <laughs> we got our manicure. Ki- I um, have to. I've heard it. He's like, we got our manicure. So kit somehow this got to there. listeners finding us many years later. <laughs> and anyway, I just want to yeah, give a sorry shout out. it for you guys. Uh, no, thanks, um, guys. No, we really appreciate that. It's We're really glad you cool found when us people cool. reach out and just stop to tell their story from a while ago because yeah. I think that's really, really awesome and. Um, I hope anybody that has found the show in recent years enjoys the like slightly different format. It's just what we do right now, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I hope you like it. But anyway, so anyway, anyway Steve Ward, Steve Ward, Steve Ward. Tell um, us all about Steve. Well, Ward, Well, I'm gonna condense his. Let's see if I. Well, I don't even know because Steve. Okay, Steve's the man. Let's Steve Ward. On. Here's our <laughs> official bio. Our, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Ward has been fascinated by the unexplained for over half a century. There were two events that had a major influence on Steve and set a course for his future path. Growing up in Michigan, that's a weird one. The March 1966 UFO flap occurred virtually in his backyard. Oh. 
which, yeah, I have to mention this very, very quickly, and I forgot to mention this to Steve, but someone just wrote a book. They sent me an email on my website that just said, I wrote this book, check it out. And it wasn't spam, and I clicked on the link, and it's called Swamp Gas My Ass. I and saw that. No, it just came out. I saw, no, I saw the thing. I know what you're talking about. I've seen, I've seen the something for that. Oh, well, okay. So anyway, I immediately bought the I'm book. I'm a nerd too, you know. Immediately bought the book. Thank the guy for sending me the link. And yeah. it was the author. I think it was like, I forget his name. It was Ron something. But he claims to be talking to some of the people that have now come forward talking about this famous UFO incident in Michigan. And uh, I don't I don't know if that title is maybe the best publicity choice, but um, I giggled at it. So anyway, uh, however... The best was yet to come for Steve. The following November, a winged humanoid chased two couples down a lonely country road near Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the legend of the Mothman was born. In a way, Steve would be chasing the Mothman the rest of his life. And as Steve noted on the show tonight, he's known as the Mothman guy. Yeah. <laughs> so influenced by John Keel and Jacques Vallée, his views on UFOs became unconventional and moved more toward a paranormal explanation. In 1977, he made his first visit to Point Pleasant, after, of course, having read The Mothman Prophecies by Keel. Since 2006, he has been involved in the Mothman Festival, both behind the scenes and as a tour guide in the TNT area where the Mothman was first seen. He has spoken at the Mothman Festival for the last two years. Well, this is probably an older bio. He's been done more than that. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Steve's main area of research is what people call high strangeness or window areas. That And that's what Keel dubbed them. Um, window areas he's involved with a lot of shows out there he's a regular podcast guest on stuff he has his own show the high strangeness factor he makes me tired by living his he, life he is a I'm correspondent exhausted. on mac maloney's military x-files radio show and he is all around a fountain of fortean knowledge enjoy our wonderful show with the amazing steve ward with us and i am so excited because steve ward is an endless fountain of fortean information he's also an awesome guy yeah too. he's just an all-around awesome guy Good friend of the show and yeah. i we were just when steve uh just before the show we were talking steve graced us with his presence at our what, what do we call it a wedding bonfire well, we post, we call, actually call it our post-nuptial get-together. Yeah, so it was basically a bonfire. And Scott invited some of his friends. And out of the blue, because Steve lives the farthest away than any of the people that showed up that night. Like, yeah. a good two hours away. And out of the blue, Steve Ward shows up <laughs> with Winshuler's cheese and crackers. And bread. You're taking this to air. I am. I love it. I'm taking this to the air. 
And I was just telling Steve how amazing that gift was. Even though we told people, don't yeah. bring gifts. We don't need anything. Da, 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 da. We explicitly said, like, but don't bring and, a gift. Yeah, and everyone gave us booze, which we didn't yeah, need, we, but we will drink. And yes. um, and then Steve's gift of, like, my absolute all-time favorite snack, cheese and crackers, was, like, just amazing. So then it also was, yeah. like, like, my little wedding present was me sitting there in our patio where I like to sit with my friends and talk. And it's Steve Ward, me, my good friend, Marnie, John E.L. Tenney, who's been on the show and Who married us um, and married us yeah. and uh, head of Michigan MUFON, Bill Konkoleski, all sitting around just having a little powwow. Yeah. And, and I want to not to cut you off. Amber, yeah. but I, do, I do want to point this out because I, as I, and we were talking about all this a couple minutes ago before we started the show. Yeah. Here. And, um, now, well, for you, Steve, all right, for, to just yes. so you know, um, Amber has talked about this nonstop since you gave her that <laughs> gift. I'm going to back you up on that. I'm going to back her up on that. Just so you know how much you affected this household with that wedding present. Um, number two, as I said a couple minutes ago before we started recording, uh, I was hosting, running around, just you know, greeting everybody, saying hi, chatting with everybody. And you're right. There was this paranormal roundtable going on in what we call the Florida room of our home yeah. here, uh, out on the patio. A- and I had to walk. You know, I would go inside to grab a beer or whatever. Or, or uh, well, my main job that night actually was showing off the kitten, showing off Binks, our new kitten. That's where I spent the majority of my time was in was in my home office here, where the kitten's living at. And ha- and hanging out with people, and nobody wants to. No, no offense to anybody who you know, our friends who were here to listen to the show, but everybody wanted to just sit there with the kitten all night. And I'm like, okay, well, hey, and I don't want to be rude. I'm like, okay, so you got the meter, so <laughs> uh, okay, I like next. to get out and hang out with people and chat. But I would be going back and forth in the house, and there was this insane paranormal roundtable going on <laughs> because in the backyard it's like black sabbaths on 11 people are dancing around the fire beers being drank and then inside the florida room we have this oh, kind of i mean not in oh. a bad a cool thing though. oh like we're all a bunch of pretentious no no you, no it wasn't like that at all it wasn't like that it was a more calm Our pinkies no 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 it wasn't like that's not what i'm saying amber <laughs> What I'm saying is, it was just a more calm, and you could, and I when I was going by there, I mean, I was just listening to the conversation. I was going by, I'm like, oh, they're getting deep, they're getting heavy. It, this is getting well, heavy and that's why we had to have Steve uh, on yeah. tonight to be able to further the conversations that we have with Steve and love to have. And today yeah, we're totally. going to be exploring the Beast of Bray Road, yeah, among other things. So we're going to be talking cryptids, and I think we're probably because it's Steve, we're going to go probably somewhere uh, into outer space, <laughs> and we're going to talk about UFOs and contactees and all the good stuff that Steve knows a million things about. So welcome to the show, Steve. We're so happy to have you. Well, it, it's great to be back. It's always great to be with you guys. And as I've said many times, it was uh, a long time ago where Ghostly Talk planted that little seed about uh, me starting a show sometime in the turned out to be the distant future, but it did happen. <laughs> but uh, I, I have I can't say enough about the uh, the the fun of the early days of Ghostly Talk. Now, I didn't come in on you know you, you started just after the millennium, right? Yeah, not too long after that. I mean, we started two thousand and two. Well, it was two it was two thousand one. We started oh. like working on things and really got the steam going in two thousand two. So you know, somewhat after the millennium, yeah. Well, I didn't come in until about 2006, but of course you had all those shows recorded. Yeah. Except for those, what, mysterious first 12 or 13 that are under lock and key and the buried. First, uh, the, yeah. The first 13 episodes, um, 
You know what? And I'm going to have to look her. You know, that's a really murky subject you bring up, Steve, because I could have sworn somebody posted those on YouTube. I, I, I'd have to look back. How did they get them? I don't know. <gasps> I don't know. We have to go look. It's something I might have to research. And, and, and you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something I, I, I should look into. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, though, Steve. No, that's okay. I thought they were buried in a shallow grave somewhere <laughs> fine now. So I've, I've never heard them. But, but those... But we won't spend a lot of time on this, but uh, are those still uh, available? I mean, the regular uh, shows from uh, 2002, roughly, on? Oh, yeah, they're, still- they're on our website. We, we have them all archived on the site still. Yeah. Those are so so much fun. You, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to go back and check some of those out. And this is the in the days when uh, the, the reality shows, the ghost hunting reality shows, were just hitting. And you guys were... You had you ran the gambit. You had the big names. You know you they were taught you talking to every Sunday night, and yeah. you also had you also had you know regular guys like me uh, on there. Of course, I wasn't on there back in those days. Yeah. But uh, uh, so it was, uh, and you had it was three hours every Sunday night live, right? Mm-hmm. And you would filled up all those hours. And I remember talking to you and Doug, the infamous. Uh, 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 let's see. How did it go? Uh, Doug and Scott L. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's yeah. That was a stick back then. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and uh, he. Uh, I talked to you guys at a Mothman Festival once, and I asked. This is in September, and I said, "Well, how how far are you guys booked up?" And he said, "We're booked up way into the next year." Yeah, we at that so, time. And, that's all we were doing was. I mean, we would we would do the show on the weekends. We were not traveling, and right? Yeah, and on the weekends we were traveling. We were recording all kinds of stuff when we were at the conferences. So, and, and that stopped. was so valuable to people that that couldn't get there. Yeah, and and you did all that was all available for free. And uh, yeah, anyway, it was you guys provided a great service. It was really really entertaining, and uh, it, it brings back a lot. Every once in a while, I will download. I used to several years ago. I used to download some of the old shows, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just a blast. No, they're still there. They're still there, Steve. All you gotta do is go to the archives on you know on the website, and they're still there for everybody. And that was, and, and I've said this before. I'll keep it very brief. I we, we, even when we went on what I guess what we call our downtime now. I don't know what that was when we stopped long term hiatus. Long long term hiatus. The agreement that Doug and I made was okay. No matter what happens in the future, if we never get behind a mic again, or we, you know. We do. Who knows? We're always going to keep these archives available. So him and I put together a money, you know, a little account uh, to keep it funded to keep the server paid for. And that all changed when we started doing the show again. But that was something we agreed on that we would never take the site down. So yeah, that's just uh, no. And it's I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it, Steve. It's really nice. Oh yeah, to hear good that times and good memories. Yeah, people should uh, go back and check that out. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to do that stuff. Bray Row, though. I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about this stupid show. <laughs> I want to talk about. Bray. I do. All right. Now, recently, um, you spoke. You spoke at the Bray Road Conference, uh, yes. and you met the Bucks County group and found right. out they were doing an investigation in the area. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They go ahead. Go ahead. It, it was Donna Fink, who uh, is from Southern Wisconsin. She uh, she is the one that ran the uh, uh, the Beast of Bray Road Conference in uh, just north of Elkhorn. And of course, Elkhorn is where Alinda uh, Godfrey was covering the original stories yeah. of the Beast of Bray Road. We can talk a little bit about that, how that originally unfolded. Okay. But uh, it turned out it was, a, it was a first-time conference. It was well-attended. It was a great venue. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was very successful. So uh, she's planning on having one next year. And it looks like it's going to be in the spring, probably toward, I think, the end of April. 
but she's been, if you go to her, she's got, uh, what is it, a Facebook page that is the uh, uh, Beast of Bray Road, I think. And uh, you'll, you can find out information on that. But I was really happy to see that, you know, you know how these first time conferences go. Uh, you've been to a million of them. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, if some of them go really well and some, you know, it, it takes a while to get these things off the ground. But Correct. But Donna did a great job and it was well attended. Very good to hear that. Very good to hear that. Steve, can you give listeners a little synopsis of the Beast of Bray Road and how it all came about? Yes, uh, it was uh, was in the early early nineties. Uh, Linda Godfrey, who uh, is well known now, a great lady, a great researcher, she was uh, working for a little newspaper called The Week out of Elkhorn, and she was uh, you know doing uh, cartoons and writing a little column. And all of a sudden, this story broke. Uh, people started talking about seeing these these upright canids along Bray Road. Now, Bray Road is uh, it's kind of hard to find. When the first time I went to go to Bray Road to, to try and find it, uh, on a whim, I went out there one Sunday. And, this, and if I finally get out there, and the sun's going down, about ready to go down, I think I can't find this damn road. But it's <laughs> it's just uh, east of Elkhorn. And if you go out one of the main drags, it uh, it's a road that curves off of that. It only runs about four miles long and then comes to a T. And it's just a, a two-lane road. Very, uh, you, you wouldn't think uh, there's anything strange about it. But people started seeing, sometimes they'd see something that looked like this large mangy dog. And then it would stand up on its hind legs. Uh, one, one woman saw it sort of on its haunches uh, eating some roadkill. Well, anyway... Uh, of course, Linda and, and most people thought this was kind of silly. She started investigating it. The local sheriff actually had a file folder marked werewolf <laughs> because he had been getting these reports of these of these creatures in this general area, not just uh, Bray Road, yeah. but in, the, I think it's Walworth County. And of course, it's it's much goes much further than that. So Linda started gathering stories about uh, this, this beast. And she found, uh, she started talking to people very credible people that were seeing this. And uh, there was even a, I found out early, uh, you find out early on in her first book, The Beast of Bray Road, and she's written several books on this particular phenomenon, which is not uh, uh, confined to Wisconsin. We have our own Michigan dog, man. Yes. Uh, uh -huh. But uh, <clears throat> she, uh, um, her second book was uh, uh, Hunting the American Werewolf, I think. And early on, in, in, right in the, early in the book, Breeze to Bray Road, she says she started finding out that people that were seeing this thing also often would have many, have had many other paranormal experiences. Well, that's right up my alley. Yep. Be, me being a, uh, a Keelian, I mean, I, I can barely choke out two or three sentences without mentioning John Keel, <laughs> <laughs> the, the author of the Mothman Prophecies. Keel early on discovered that uh, many of these things seem to be connected. And you didn't have to imagine it or force it. You would find these patterns and, and, and connections in when, when you started listening to people's experiences. Uh, Linda tells a book, a story early in the book where uh, I'm trying to remember the there was a, a, a the animal control officer, uh, a, a lady named Lori, who was one of the early uh, uh, people that saw the beast of Bray Road. She's talking to him. And there, and he he tells this story. By the way, uh, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters did a great uh, uh, DVD on the Bray Road Beast. Well, he's interviewed on this, the, the animal control officer, and uh, 
he's talking to Lori, and they're they're wondering if there's maybe some kind of cult activity associated with this because there had been cult activity in that area for other other things. And all of a sudden, the books start flying off the shelf behind him. The the shelf didn't fall. Nobody was there pushing it. It was like a a poltergeist outbreak. Uh, And and just to to pursue this a little more, Linda, in her second book, The uh, Hunting the American Werewolf, she talks about how it was almost by happenstance. She's looking at one of her cluster maps of where people are seeing this this dog man for lack of a better term and she also has the uh, a book out on called wisconsin wisconsin indian mounds and she's looking at some of the effigy mounds in southern wisconsin and she found out there's almost a perfect overlay with certain specific types of effigy mounds and namely the uh, the panther mounds and the water spirit mounds now, the, the way these look, the panther mounds look like a, if you were to draw a very simple uh, panther, you know, the, you do the head, maybe a little ear and the feet and the tail. The water spirit is like a smaller version of that, but it has a very long pointed tail. For some reason, the, these sightings seem to cluster almost perfectly around those mounds. The point is that uh, early on, there was a suggestion that Perhaps there was something more to this than just a some kind of a, an unknown flesh and blood creature. And as we get into more and more of this, I think people will find out that that to try and look at this as just an unknown, undocumented animal, it just doesn't really explain it. I so I was watching the video you sent to us uh, where the Bucks County Paranormal Investigators went and filmed a little like kind of small documentary about them looking for yes. the beast of Bray road over yeah. on um, one of the farms over there. It was, uh, I think the guy yes, was named uh, Lee, a man Lee named Hample. Lee, Lee Hample. And he was actually originally uh, discussed in uh, Linda Godfrey's book. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> It'll come to me. It's one of her, her later books. Uh, Monsters, Mo- Monsters among, among us? us. Okay. Yes. Yes. And uh, but he at, at that time he wasn't using his real name. Okay. And even uh, did you guys go to the uh, uh, the, the Dogman Symposium? No, a few years no, ago? no. You define, okay. Uh, when Linda talked there, she get, showed some photographs of the his property there and these strange mists that would show up. And uh, you know she gave, showed some of the photographs that he was taking there. Uh, but let, let me set this up. We uh, uh, I was speaking there. A, a friend of mine. Uh, a young lady named Brandy. She and her husband live just a, a couple hours south of there. And she's been a co-host on my show several times, The High Strangeness Factor on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. Get that in there. <laughs> and, we'll link it up. Uh, don't worry. Well, it was uh, it, she and I, uh, uh, We of course, we attended the conference. And then that night, as part of the deal was, you could pay an extra $10 and go take a hayride at Lee Hample's farm. And there was also something about seeing some photographs there. Well, the photographs were absolutely mind-blowing. We, we did do the hayride for, I don't know, uh, 10 or 15 minutes just around his property. But we spent about two hours seeing these photographs that Lee Hample, a, a retired mathematician and teacher, photographed over the last decade or so on, on his property with trap cameras. And his story is that he... Uh, Back about, uh, 
I don't remember the year. It was before 2011. He uh, uh, he and his brother bought the property. Uh, they uh, 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 made hay on it. <laughs> Not made hay, but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry, bad. I'm the worst punster. <laughs> An actual planet. hay farm. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, actually. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, some of the locals there told him. And, and, and by the way, Lee Hample is uh, is on the the uh, the Bucks County Paranormal guys. We'll talk about them in a minute. They're the uh, the YouTube video they put out. He's interviewed extensively on there. He's also toward the end of the Bray Road Beast by Small Town Monsters. I didn't know that before. Okay. And uh, he, you know, some of the locals there said, hey, you know, those woods back there, there's a werewolf that lives back there. And he's thinking, what, what are you talking about? I'm a mathematician. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I, you know, a werewolf. And then he sees the thing himself. And other people, credible people, have seen it. So he starts, uh, he, he started experimenting with, uh, with roadkill, really. And he found that, uh, I think it was he put a raccoon down, just, just dropped it on the property there. And uh, he found it slit open. Yeah, like, that's what like, yeah. Oh, I know. And the, and the guts, I mean, it was, it's gross, but yeah. it, the things that were happening didn't make any sense. And, and, and more and more, he started putting cameras up and putting the roadkill down. The roadkill would be taken. And it wouldn't trigger what was taking it. We we saw photographs on his. Uh, we, we were in his in his barn, and he had a, a like a screen set up, and he was going through. You know, he's got thousands of photographs he's collected over the years. He doesn't show everybody everything, uh, which I, I'm dying to see more. He's he's going to do this again next year, but uh, he uh, he shows up, uh, and you can tell. You know, you can see the timestamp on all these, so you know how much time has gone by. And he showed us several situations where there was a, a deer carcass or whatever that was laying there. And then all of a sudden it's gone after a period of time. And there's no, they don't capture anything or anybody taking it away. There's no drag marks. There's no footprints. It's just, but, but once in a while you get these mists that kick up. And one time there was a, uh, you see a picture of him. It's broad daylight, and you see this mist surrounding him. But he didn't see anything when he was there, which is kind of creepy. Uh, you, when you start thinking about David Politis and his missing four one one books, yeah. you know that's all I need is a strange mist in oh, the middle of no. nowhere. I'm out of there. Yeah. But he didn't even see it. But we we were we saw a an array of 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 strange lights uh metallic looking objects uh he started he started seeing these footprints all over the place and they were five toed with a pad and and the the back to it the heel and uh he he's he's actually has sent these photographs to uh you know the dnr and other people one woman told him he was a liar and he made it up and but he's getting these all over the place and and all the uh Wildlife experts are saying these these don't they don't exist in reality. There must be some kind of a a coyote, deformed coyote or something. Well, if you remember looking at that video, the Bucks County video, there is a you see these these tracks in the snow. Oh, but I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, he, uh, he was telling us Lee Hample, and he's there with his brother Fred, and Fred is a riot. He was he was telling Fred about this stuff initially, and Fred wasn't 
wasn't ready to take any of this. And, and he told Fred that all of a sudden, these footprints would start in the middle of nowhere and then end in the middle of nowhere. We've heard that same story in some cases with Bigfoot prints as well and other, other cryptids. And his brother Fred said, well, he probably just parachuted in. You know, don't worry about it. <laughs> so, but, it's, but he had all these, these pictures. And in, in one uh, uh, set of images on the, that uh, video, that, that was good about, uh, that's the one thing I liked about the Bucks County video, besides them being out there doing that uh, night vigil investigation. Uh, that's one of the first times you've been able to see at least a few of the photographs from Lee Hample's uh, uh, selection. And you got to see some of the strange craft and the, and the footprints and the lights and so forth. But uh, so in this one photograph, you see like, like a single set of prints, like just one set. And we're told that sometimes animals will do that. They'll step in the same uh, footprint. But then all of a sudden it splits like in a cartoon. That was really weird. When I was watching it goes in their two video, directions. Yeah, that feet. was like is one animal carrying the other and then just like said here you go like well, how do you explain that is it, that was a weird one that was that was odd um, so we go ahead I'll talk, I'll talk a little more about these these photographs when you know there, there were so many of them and he didn't really allow anybody and i understand why he didn't allow anybody to take photographs uh i guess some of these have been on uh, a show before and i think they might have been misrepresented or whatever he's very careful about uh, how he lets this material out I hope I hope that he's able to publish some of it at some point. But uh, so the next day, uh, Brandy and I decided we wanted to try to take a stroll down Bray Road. Right. Well, you can't really do that. I mean, if you park on Bray Road, the cops are going to come and the locals, they, they don't want people to do that. Uh, a few years ago, I parked at a uh, at a kind of a kind of a strip mall about a half mile away. And I, I took a stroll about a mile and a half in and, and came back. But uh, we were able to uh, to uh, park on a uh, on, on private property with permission, by the way. Yeah. And so we, we was it was not too far from Bray Road. And we were able to kind of walk in that the one area that seems to be the hot spot or the where all the stuff happens is toward the east end. And um, so but before that, we, we were driving along Bray and we see these people out there. With, with cameras and everything. So we stopped being nosy. And so we met uh, Eric uh, uh, Hampel, I'm sorry, Eric Mintel and uh, Dominic uh, Satel. And, uh, and they were there with their team and they were, they were having uh, some weird problems with the, uh, the drone for one thing. Uh, but they were that night they were going to spend, you know, on uh, and Lee Hampel's property and, you know, see what they could capture. And so uh, I asked if they would be on my show. And so we've, we've done uh, uh, several, uh, several shows with them. And uh, I also did a show with Donna Fink as well, because Donna has been out there and, and experienced some strange stuff. But she's also experienced some uh, high strangeness and seen some weird cr critters in the, uh, in, the general, in the general area. So it's not just confined to this farm. So, so that's how we, we got together with these guys. And... Uh, when you watch the video, uh, they really, really were freaking out. They saw eye shine that looked like it was uh, about six feet off the ground. And you can hear the howls back and forth. Yeah. Now, I don't know what it is, but uh, if, if I was out there, I wonder how brave I would be, you know? I, I, I wondered if it was a coyote because I've, I've 
I've lived in an area where there's coyotes, and they do have that high-pitched kind of long squeal. But someone in the video was like, it's definitely not a coyote. So it's like, I don't know. Maybe they know the sound better. I don't know. Uh, and then also if you hear fox foxes at night, they can right. have like a creepy, like super creepy scream. I don't think that sounded like a fox though, in that video. But does do you ever get the vibe this is this area of land is like a skinwalker ranch light? Well, that's that's kind of the way they've described it. And uh, you know, if the if in fact the eye shine was six feet off the ground, uh, you know, unless you've got a, a marsupial on stilts or something like that, there's something pretty strange going on out there. And uh, you know, they started seeing a mist, which which may have been you know normal atmospheric conditions or whatever. But they also saw a UFO, yeah. which they they told they they gave a. When they were on my show, they gave a better description of it. They were watching it. They did get a, a, a picture of it, but at one point it just zipped off, you know, like like some of these things do. So they experienced several things. But but if you look at, uh, I mean, look, there's no way that Lee Hample has has uh, uh, faked hundreds of photographs. We saw in the daylight where there's this one part of his land. You see the tree, and you see this thing it's 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 a physically it's a solid object looks like a turtle shell sort of and it zips you can tell by the timestamp it zips around this tree in almost no time um there's uh uh there's there's some photographs they're from quite a distance and it could actually be the beast itself and he's had some of these things analyzed one of them you can't really you can't really see the detail but somebody analyzed and said Look, whatever this thing is, it's six feet tall. Hmm. Um, so I, I just, you know, I wish there was some way to. Uh, oh, and then there's this, you know, so much of this stuff. When when you get into these areas, what I call high strangers areas, you don't get a a nice narrative. A, B, C. Oh, I, I understand. That's what's going on here. There's one photograph he shows where it's it's daylight. It's in the middle of a field. You see something that looks like a, a ribbon or a snake. It's black. It's like two humps. It's, 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 it's suspended in the air. Doesn't make any sense. And then he moves the, the, uh, the view of that picture off to the side. And you see something that looks like some kind of a, a boxy mechanical device with, with a couple of circles on it or wheels or something. And none of this makes any sense. What, what, what drives me crazy is you... I mean, they, they put uh, they put bait out there. They put roadkill. Uh, these things are seen by the side of the road eating this stuff sometimes. Yeah. So they're acting like wild animals. Yeah. Yet they're not captured. Or well, there's there's a couple photographs where you see this black silhouette, which could be part of the beast. I mean, who knows? Uh, but you most of the time they're completely elusive and completely uh, free of being of, of their images being captured, even though you know something has removed the roadkill. So what's going on? This, this suggests with the mechanical, some of the, uh, the drones or whatever you see up in the sky, whatever you want to interpret them, it suggests some kind of an intelligence. Uh, so is some intelligence interacting with these things, uh, covering for them? I mean... I try to put these this together, and it just doesn't fit. I don't know how much you've researched the Michigan Dogman 
but are there pretty much are there similarities between the two? Are are they the same type of bean, or is, is there something different about um, our guy in Michigan? I, I think they're I think they're just basically the same. Okay. Um, there's there's a uh, there's a program a, a podcast out there called Dogman Encounters Radio, and he's had hundreds of shows where people have come forth to talk about their experience, and a lot of these people saw this thing years ago. There's there's nothing new about this, and it's not confined to the Midwest. It's all over the place. It's almost like, as weird as it is to have seen a Bigfoot, it's almost like that's kind of acceptable to talk about your Bigfoot experience. But when it came to talking about upright canids with yellow eyes with a sinister look, that was that was taboo. But it seems like many, many people have experienced it. And it reminds me when you bring that up, Lee Hample has said he's seen other types of critters on the property, something that looks more like some kind of a hyena. And this this just rings like a true like another Skinwalker Ranch. Um, you know, the Skinwalker Ranch, if you uh, a lot of people, you know, were critical of the, uh, the reality show. I'm not as critical, uh, but, you know, there's uh, reality shows. Um, they get a lot of criticism and some of them really deserve it. So people are kind of uh, uh, very hesitant to to put stock in them. But yeah, yeah. if you go back and, and read the book, The Hunt for the Skinwalker yeah. by George Knapp and Colm Kelleher. And of course, George Knapp was the uh, is a, uh, uh, a, a, a reporter for uh, investigative reporter for uh, Las Vegas in Las Vegas. And Colm Kelleher, a scientist, he was part of the National Institute for Discovery Science that was set up by Robert Bigelow when he owned the farm, when he bought it from the Shermans, who uh, originally owned it and went through all this bizarre activity. So um, they experienced all kinds of, of cryptids. And sometimes it was just for a short period of time. There was this large, almost like a dire wolf. Uh, there were these ugly dog-like creatures. Uh, and they saw another sort of a, hy a hyena type creature as well. So, and then I was, uh, I was reading, uh, you know, on, on Facebook, uh, Jan Maccabee, now, she is the wife of Bruce McAbee, Dr. Bruce McAbee. He was a, uh, a photographic expert for the Navy. And uh, are you guys, you guys are familiar with David Politis, obviously. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Have you, have you seen the book on hunters? Yes, and watched the documentary. Ah, so you know about the photograph that, that, that Jan McAbee captured when she was in a deer blind near Lima, Ohio. Remember that? That's it's cut. You see, uh, it was there was something jumping around in the tree, and it had sort of the predator effect. Uh, sometimes they call it the quicksilver curtain or the uh, uh, the shimmer. But she took took a photograph okay, of I that. I remember that. Yes, 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 yes. I remember that yes. now. Yep. And, and it's sort of like a blur. Yep. And if you look at the edges, you see these black hairs sticking out. Yep. Well, she has mentioned. I, I saw her mention something about that they live on sort of Skinwalker too. She captured something else. I, I, I'd love to talk to her about it, but she captured something else up. The, the, the camera triggered on a fox or something like that. And behind that, it seems like, I think she said there's a, like a six foot humanoid or something standing behind there. I might have that wrong, so don't quote me. But that's so bizarre that there's so many of these areas. And now at least uh, while cameras don't capture everything, and these things are still very elusive. 
these places are all over the, uh, you know, all over the country. And uh, so I, I've always wanted to find one of these places and, uh, and be able to check it out. And uh, there's a possibility I'll be able to go on some of these uh, excursions around uh, uh, Bray Road of that area check it out we'll see we'll see if i have the metal to uh (laughs) (laughs) we need to find one of these areas like some chunk of land that's for sale and they're like we're trying to get rid of it for cheap because weird stuff happens and we see chupacabra and ufos we'll be like "Ooh, skinwalker area (laughs) we'll give give you five dollars take our money take it five dollars and 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 if you find aunt mildred she disappeared two years ago let us know yeah her aunt came back we found her uh, yes, wouldn't you love to oh, have access it. to a place like that I, where you could just go in stealthily and do uh, night vigils or, or whatever? Uh, everybody holding hands. You know, I told uh, when you when you see the video, you've got uh, Eric Mintel, Dominic Satel, and uh, Ellen Collins, and uh, they were the three people that were of of the Bucks County group, Bucks County Paranormal Investigations which is uh, based out of Pennsylvania. Uh, Ellen is part of their uh, Wisconsin branch. And so they were out there for part of the night. And uh, I said that I knew that you, this wasn't a, a, uh, a, a science fiction story I'd seen on the sci-fi channel because you guys didn't separate. You guys stayed together the whole time. Yeah. If, if this had been on the sci-fi channel, one of them would have said, oh, what's that over there? And then they would have <laughs> gone off into the shadows and you would have heard some munching and crunching and they would have disappeared. <laughs> That's the thing. Like We were talking about David Politis earlier. Safety in numbers and don't be the last one on the trail and yeah. have people. Or the, or, or yeah. the first one. Like, you know, if you go out of sight and you're yep. the first one. Nope. Nope. Like that kind of stuff, that – out of all of the things in the paranormal over the past decade that I've learned about, I think the most startling was the stuff David Politis was talking about and checking out the missing 411 books. I really feel that his first documentary was sort of like, meh. Like, I, I expected something more from it. Maybe not so much the focus on the family that he did. Uh, but it was the second documentary, The Hunters, that I was like, yes. this is good. This is what I feel it makes the books interesting, the stories interesting. Right. Um, and I and I guess it had been out because I'm not the biggest you know, uh, expert on Bigfoot stuff. But I heard those sounds, and I think they were recorded maybe in like the 70s. Mm. And I forget. Oh, what- yes. The, uh, the Sierra Sounds yes. by Ron Moorhead. Yes. Oh, my God. Anyone out there? Google the Sierra sounds because I think you can hear it on YouTube and you can also order them. Uh, They were available with Ron Moorhead's first book called uh, something about the wilderness. Um, Check out Ron Moorhead. But what's, what's interesting is he made the transition like so many did people, investigators would start out thinking that these things were unknown creatures. And then they went to the dark side and discovered that there's something paranormal uh, something there's a certain amount of high strangeness associated with these experiences. Yeah. And then he wrote Quantum Bigfoot, and he talked about having uh, seen strange lights out there and batteries draining in the recorders and the cameras when they're trying to uh, document what's going on now. So, but yes, that's those. Yeah. Those are, and also uh, there's another book I want to recommend. It's called Valley of the Skookum. And it's by uh, Sally Shepard Wolford. She's the mother of uh, Autumn Williams, another famous Bigfoot researcher. And when Autumn was between about three and six, 
73 to 76. They lived in Ording, Washington. And uh, they, they uh, uh, Sally documents all the bizarre activity that went on. I mean, they saw classic Bigfoots, but there were classic UFOs, orange orbs following the cars, uh, uh, disappearing Bigfoots, a glowing Bigfoots, um, just, just an array of bizarre activity. But she talked about how at night near their little cabin, she would hear these things. This is about, about the same time Ron Moorhead is getting these recordings in the Sierra Nevadas. And she described them as sort of rapid fire Chinese, Ugh. for lack of a better. Yeah. And that's kind of what it yeah. sounds like. Ugh. And uh, so she was hearing the same kind of thing in the, you know, the uh, next state over, next couple states over. And uh, so that's, yeah, it is, it's really fascinating. But again, it's, it's interesting. You get the same uh, a pattern that shows up and it's not, you know, completely different. Right. So that's something that I've always said when I, when I gave my talk at the Bray road conference, I said the, it was important to listen to the experiencer. Of course, we're, we always were trying to assess the credibility of the individual, but we, we do a disservice if we go in with our preconceived ideas of what this thing is and then immediately reject some of the things that they're telling us because it doesn't fit what we think it should be. I was just thinking about this today where I was listening to a podcast where they were kind of um, talking about all the the things that ghost hunters have used, uh, the kind of equipment they've used over the past uh, 20 years and how they're just like, oh, you know, none of this stuff works. It's all about the experience. And if and I thought if there's one thing that all of these these kind of hobbyist paranormal enthusiasts have done for the past 20 years is collected a ton of stories from experiencers and actually listened to these people and took them seriously, which is yes. nice because half the research and the data comes from listening to these people say, hey, I'm not crazy, but this is what happened to me. This is my story. Right. Um because you're an expert on Keel, what did Keel think about things like Bigfoot? Bigfoot, or did he talk about canine upright canine cryptids ever in his books? Um, I don't know that he covered the uh, dogman. He one of his. Uh, I, I reminisced the other day of uh, working in a little factory uh, north of Detroit uh, in the seventies. Uh, you know, we're living in an apartment without much money to my name. And I'm reading on uh, uh, on my breaks in lunch. I'm reading "Strange Creatures from Time and Space" by John Keel, <laughs> with with some hot chocolate from the coffee machine. <laughs> and you know, I wouldn't. You didn't have much time, but man, bring back good memories. In that in that book, which has been retitled "The Guide to Mysterious Beings" and is in trade paper now. Uh, that's that's by the way is where Keel first presents the idea of window areas because he was trying to come to grips with why do these things seem to sort of pop in, uh, scare people, leave footprints, and then they're gone. You know, perhaps it, it was, he, he gets, gets much heavier into that in his book that came out right about the same time called Operation Trojan Horse. But that's where he first kind of uh, gently leads you into this. Uh, he, I, I think in the, was it the 80s? I'm trying, I can't remember the reference, but he actually was in, I think, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Might have been Ohio. But he was with, he was actually uh, with some people investigating Bigfoot. And there were situations where they were hearing them, 
but it almost seemed like they were invisible. Uh, they were, you know, leaving signs of their presence, but nobody could see them. And it didn't seem like it was just that they were hiding behind a bush. I wish I could remember more of the detail. But but Keel, Keel talked about how uh, people, he, he saw the connection between UFO witnesses and cryptid witnesses. He said they suffer from sometimes the same after effects, conjunctivitis, eye burn, uh, headaches, uh, uh, dehydration. He said, whether you're seeing a what appears to be a metallic craft from outer space or a, a hairy biped wandering across the road, people would have the same kind of effects. Let me give you one example. Uh, the, the Mothman. And I'm, I found out I'm known as the Mothman guy. When I, went, <laughs> I, went, I went to the, uh, uh, the I was spoke at the Bigfoot conference in Ann Arbor this past summer. And uh, by the way, uh, they, they split us up. They had the legitimate researchers, you know, in the bigger room. And then there was the woo room, oh. you know, off to the side. Yes. Oh. And I call it the redheaded stepchild room. <laughs> but, and I told, you know, Adam Davies was speaking the same time I was. So I'm thinking, oh, geez, I'll get uh, two people and some homeless guy from the alley, you know. But actually, <laughs> I had a pretty good crowd, so it worked out well. But I, I told Adam Davies, I said, you know, Adam, I've been telling people that you've been robbing money from orphanages so people won't go to your talk <laughs> instead of mine. So he got a kick out of that. But uh, at the, uh, they, they were, they were called, introducing me as the Mothman guy. So anyway, uh, uh, the, the point is that one of the, the original sightings that John Keel investigated was a lady named Connie Carpenter. And she was driving past the Mason County golf course. So this is early on when these things started happening. And she sees the classic humanoid with wings, red glowing eyes, and it takes off straight up like a helicopter, doesn't flap its wings, which is a paradox. And when Keel, that happened very shortly afterwards, Keel had arrived in Point Pleasant and uh, they got together several of the witnesses for him that he could talk to. She was there and she had conjunctivitis. She had the, the eye burn or whatever. And that's normally associated with close encounters with UFOs. And so, uh, so Keel, uh, Keel saw that in many cases, he, you know, he, he's talked about, uh, he used the term ultra terrestrial and he borrowed that term from Ivan Sanderson. And of course, uh, Ivan Sanderson was the great British naturalist, uh, transplanted to New Jersey. Uh, he had his own TV show on animals for a while. He's probably best known for the abominable snowman legend come to life and wrote some great books on UFOs and the unexplained. Uh, so he, they used this term, he used this term ultra terrestrial because he thought uh, perhaps that some of this stuff that we tend to think of as ET uh, may not be from off world. It may be, these things may be a natural condition of the planet. And, uh, he talked about the, the these being possibly some kind of energies or whatever, maybe some kind of intelligence. But he 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 said that sometimes, you know, his thinking wasn't static, so it, it did change over time. But if you read the Mothman prophecies, he talks about these strange meandering lights, and he thought perhaps that might be the only objectively real aspect of some of these things. People would see the light, be programmed, or perhaps these things would would morph into or transmogrify into these 
maybe a hairy biped, maybe a giant black triangle overhead or whatever. So he wasn't he wasn't the least bit concerned if you saw a craft with five portholes or what it was shaped like. He wasn't that concerned with the type of creature you saw. He thought perhaps some of these things were coming from the same origin. And he, he, said, he stated that he wanted to understand the cosmic mechanism behind these things. And I think, I think he was really on to something. Now, yeah. that being said, I think there's kind of a duality. Because I think uh, the more I look at it, I think there are some aspects of this. I mean, where there are real craft, real entities, some other intelligence or whatever. Uh, he did talk about uh, things like paranormal mimicry. And the, uh, the idea was that, you, you mean, of course, you've read, uh, you know, of Stan Gordon's research in Pennsylvania. Yeah. The, I talked about in, in my talk, I, I recounted the uh, bizarre experience in, uh, this is 73, 74. There were these really odd Bigfoot reports. I mean, beyond the, the norm. And they were seen a lot of times in conjunction with what looked like flying saucers or strange lights in the sky. And uh, uh, it's hard to understand what the connection might be. But, uh, well, let me, let me just give you one example here. This, this kind of shows you how, how tough it is to try and put this together. When, when I think of the Bray Road stuff, when I saw the pictures on Lee Hample's property, heard his, his talk, uh, heard the Bucks County uh, investigation, I think of a thousand-piece puzzle. And if we could put it all together, we'd look at it and, and maybe we would say, oh, I kind of see what's going on. But we've got maybe 12 pieces of that puzzle and none of them are next to each other. They're just scattered all over. So we've got this little bit, this little bit, and we can't figure out how it goes together. But let me let me recount this one in Silent Invasion. You know, I, I remember reading uh, 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 Stan Gordon's articles dating myself back in the <laughs> mid 70s right back in the, you know just after the spanish-american war and uh and uh in, in like ufo report that was the 70s was such a great time for you could get, late boys and girls sit around and i'll tell you stories about the 70s you could go <laughs> to a bookstore or a magazine store and actually buy magazines you didn't have to read them on the computer yeah. or on your Kindle. And they, they actually had several, you know, UFO or Fortean type publications. And you could order more of them through the mail, the subscriptions. Man, I, I was just had a field day with that stuff. Well, uh, well, Stan start, started investigating this stuff uh, with the Kex, Kexburg incident. Uh, but this wave of bizarre reports occurred in the middle 70s in Pennsylvania. There was this one that he now he had a team set up. He had some a, a guy that was a the radiation officer for the county. He had an, an ex Air Force guy officer. Uh, he was in touch with uh, Dr. Bertrand Schwartz, who was a, a psychiatrist, psychiatrist and psychologist. Uh, so and, and, the, and the state police would call Stan when they would get these bizarre reports, they couldn't cover them all. So they call Stan and his group would go there and investigate. So sometimes he was on the scene within hours of the incident. Uh, okay. So this classic one, uh, it is, I think February, let's see. Uh, no, it's about uh, October of 73. 
and the main witness, uh, whose name I can't remember, uh, Kubelchek, I think it is. He's uh, he's going to his uh, farm. His family's there. There's 15 people. They see this 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 round uh, spherical object. This light, really, it's all white, and it's hovering over the the property. And so he uh, he jumps in his pickup truck, and there's a couple kids with him. They go to the the next property over to get another vantage point. By that time, it seems like this thing may have landed, but its shape has changed. Now it's a dome, and it's an orange light, and uh, it's getting dark. And there's a fence about 75 feet away, about six feet tall, barbed wire fence. And they notice there are a couple of creatures walking along the fence toward this craft or light or whatever it is. And they think they're bears, but they're not. They're some kind of a bizarre Bigfoot. They've got green glowing eyes, not the, the usual red glowing, if they're glowing at all. They've got exceptionally long arms and they're very hairy. They're making a noise like a baby crying. Mm. And this guy... Kovalchek has grabbed his 30 6 when he, when he went over there. And so he shoots a couple of tracers at it. And the first one, they ignore. The second one, the taller one, which is about uh, eight feet, sort of reaches out its hand toward it. And that moment it does that, this light or craft or whatever either winks out or cloaks itself. I don't know what it was. And it's gone, except there's a glowing light on the, a circle on the field where it, it once stood. And these things change direction and go back toward the woods. Uh, now he shoots one of them. He's sure he hits it a couple times. He says it sounds like a bullet hitting water, going through water. But it doesn't affect it. It just keeps moving. So he thinks, okay, time to call the, uh, the state police. State police officer shows up. That glowing light is still there on the field. And he turns off his headlights in his car to make sure it's not a reflection from him. So he sees that weird thing. And then they start to hear something. When they move, there's something moving behind them from the woods. And all of a sudden, one of these things charges the fence. And this police officer sees it. So you've got another witness to this. And they decide, exit stage right. They leave. But he calls Stan and his group. (laughs) Stan, you go out there and check this out. So by the time they get out there, it's about one or two in the morning. And so everything, there's no evidence left. There's no creatures. There's no noises. There's no light on the ground. So he's explaining to Stan and two or three of his uh, people what had happened. Then all of a sudden, Kovalchek starts to freak out. He starts to rub his face. And then he starts to wave his hands. And he makes, he's making this god-awful howl. His father's there and thinks that, thinks that these Bigfoots have somehow possessed him. Anyway, <laughs> they don't know what's going on, but he collapses. They pick him up. They, they, take, they pick up his glasses and give them to him. He looks at the glasses. He's kind of coming to, and he says, who do these belong to? I can see perfectly. What? So anyway, uh, eventually, they, he, uh, Dr. Bertolt Schwartz, who wasn't there on the scene, examines him, said this guy had some kind of fugue. But this is what he said he experienced. He did not remember spazzing out, waving his arms, yelling. He, what he experienced was, he said, was a cloaked figure, hood and a cloak, carrying a sickle, telling him, uh, you know, that we were, the mankind 
was doomed if we didn't change our ways. You know, how many times have we heard that, right? right? But what do you want to, you know, confront? A green-eyed Bigfoot or the Grim Reaper? I don't know. Yeah. You know toss a coin on that. And afterwards, Stan said that this guy developed some psychic abilities. He would have these precognitive dreams about planes crashing, and it would come true. And he hated this. And now the postscript to this, uh, they wanted, uh, they, they really wanted to put him under regressive hypnosis to find out if they could, you know, glean anything else out of this experience. But they thought, boy, after this uh, weird uh, fugue he had, maybe we better let well enough alone. A couple of years later, they approached him and said, look, do you mind if we put you under regressive hypnosis? And he looked at him puzzled and he said, well, what do you mean? You showed up two weeks later and did that. Whoa. Two men, one dressed like an Air Force officer, one in plain clothes, implying that they were connected to Stan Gordon's yep. team, put them under hypnosis, said, we'll get back to you and tell you the results. They did not. He also claimed that they showed him a book with photographs of UFOs and Bigfoot creatures and asked him yeah. to point out what his looked like. <laughs> okay, yeah. so the reason I tell you that story is this. This thing has everything. It has some kind of a strange cryptid, but it's not even the normal Bigfoot cryptid. It has disappearing UFO. You know, how do you, how do you put this together? How do you understand his personal experience? I, I, my label for these things is a paranormal diorama because I don't know that it's that simple if we can say, well, this, this, this extraterrestrial craft landed, let the Bigfoots out to stretch their legs. And, you know, I, I don't know that we can go A, B, C. Maybe it's more of a something staged or a projection or maybe, uh, you know, Jacques Vallée, uh, author of many fascinating books on UFOs, including Passport to Magonia, talks about the idea of metalogic, that perhaps these entities' actions, they're so far beyond us that we just it just looks like gibberish to us. It looks nonsensical, but we can't put it together because it's we just are not on their level of of consciousness or whatever. But uh, this is this is the kind of thing that uh, we're dealing with. This is the kind of thing that John Keel was looking at. Um, so, could it, could it, I mean, could it be? I mean, and it's interesting what you just postulated, Stephen. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, that we have all this stuff, and I, and I agree. There's a lot of stuff. Is it an issue that maybe our mind just cannot arrange the stuff in the way it needs to be arranged for the stuff to make sense? It, it may well be um, because we, but did the human condition, like I was talking about the Bray Road yeah. and these creatures seeming acting like animals, uh, yet there's some kind of technology hiding them. We, the brain, the human brain wants to make sense of all this, but it doesn't make sense. So what we're, we're missing something. Well, you know, I mean, th I want to think of I mean, these creatures we're talking about, right? I mean, cryptozoology has a lot of stuff. There's, I'd say I'd be willing to say there's thousands of different things out there within the cryptozoology umbrella. Um, and I guess the way I'm looking at it is we as humans, us sophisticated humans with our big brains and our logic and our emotion, 
we behave in a certain way. We act in a certain way. We expect behavior out of each other in certain ways, right? Um, and let's say that, I mean, some some creature comes from somewhere else. We, I mean, maybe, and I, I mean, maybe this idea is real. Let's assume for a second that something can kind of pop in and pop out of our reality. Uh, I guess what the way I look at it is anything, and I think this is a part of the human condition too, to a certain degree. I'm not proud of it, but I we I think we as humans look at anything but ourselves, uh, bipedals that we are with our cars and cell phones, right? Uh, as animals. And we observe them as animals and we, dare I say, sometimes treat them like animals, right? If you, if you follow what I'm saying so far, I think yes. it's a matter of how we, we, we perceive them, right? So this could be some ultra intelligent creature that we're observing, but it's only acting in the way it can act in our reality, <laughs> right? And maybe that's why we observe them or perceive well, them that and way. Think about how hard it is to describe when you see something anomalous. When a UFO experiencer you said, well, what did it look like? How big was it? And they're like, uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And if there's five people there that saw it, they all might say that they saw and experienced something slightly different. And I think that happens with the ghost realm, the UFO realm. Most like obviously with the cryptid realm where people kind of they can't place a finger on it. They just know that it's something they can't explain. Well, that's the thing. It's 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 uncanny. And I, I use the term anomalous a lot. It's something anomalous. We cannot explain this. Right. And I mean, I didn't mean to stop you there, Steve, but no, that's but I, I need to be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, that's an interesting thought because I, I do think it's a matter of perception for a lot of us, how we perceive things. Uh, and that, that does go back to that idea. Amber. like, you know, well, you saw, you said you saw this UFO, what it looked like. I, yeah. I mean, I saw yeah, stuff saw, and I can't, I can but, barely but now, At the same it. time, some people can give good, good descriptions though, too. I mean, it goes both ways. You know, I, I, to go back to that Kecksburg story, I forgot how good that story is. And the fact that how well it's documented that there's police involved. And I, I think back to like the Mulder and Scully that showed up. And hypnotized him. And it's like, ooh, like to just know what has gone on in the government all these decades where they have that, that you know, that X-Files team swooping in. And if they are from the government or is it something else, who knows? But I just with all this stuff with UFOs right now and how more and more keeps coming out in the news, the, the general media about how long we've been looking into the UFO phenomena past Project Blue Book, it just feels like it's just there's always been a chapter of like paranormal research within the government, like since day one, I swear. I want that job. <laughs> well, you know, it's obviously they've, uh, they, well, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to put your, put your finger on it. I think there have been, been certain uh, sections of the government that have been looking into some of this stuff. But, you know, there, there's also a faction that looks at a lot of this stuff as demonic, that there's, a, there's some kind of a spiritual side to it. Yeah. And it's evil. Yeah. And there has been. It seems to me that Nick Redfern, uh, you know, Nick is uh, is a, a phenomenal researcher and he's gotten so much out of the uh, 
uh, from Freedom of, of, from, of Information Act. And uh, there was a book he wrote called Final Events. And I think he documented a, uh, a clandestine group that firmly believed that UFOs were demonic. And, uh, and I think, and I, you know, you hear these things, you don't know how to assess it. I think even the, uh, the remote viewing program, the, the military remote viewing program, which is fascinating, and some of the stuff that came out of that, uh, had trouble funding because there were some elements in the government that looked at it as something that shouldn't be pursued, you know, from a religious standpoint. So, uh, you know, I just, I get to the point where some of these things, like, like Roswell, uh, I, there's a guy, I think I'm going to be able to get on my show that has done a lot of research there. But for me right now, for Roswell, it's like white noise. You know, it's like the Kennedy assassination. Every year, a new theory. And every year, a theory that's, that I, I don't know what's true and what's not. So I, I don't know what happened at Roswell. I guess at this point, I suspect it was a, uh, uh, it was not extraterrestrial or whatever. I could be wrong, uh, but uh, it, some of these things with 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 the government, it's just uh, it's just it's like white noise. I think and and, and the stuff about crash saucers is supposed to be dozens and dozens of them. Well, maybe, but I I, I just don't know. It's some of the stuff is just so elusive, I know. and it's so hard to determine what's real and what's not. I know, and 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 plus when you watch all these videos on line of people uh showing stuff like you get these the tic tac and the gimbal and all these stuff that um are, are allegedly government footage and then never help it does not help when you get the uh, everybody filming stuff with their cell phones and and right. half the time it's a droid and you got to filter <laughs> through all this garbage and some french uh um guy who likes to hoax stuff uh there was an interesting little uh drone uh, like tic tac video that got popped out last week and everyone, tic-tac, it, tic-tac. it looked like a tic tac, tic tac, and uh, tic tac, a tic, yeah, okay. yeah, like the candy, oh, the candy, yeah. Right, okay. Anyway, so I watched that video and I was like, no. And then I'm on hashtag UFO Twitter, which is like a battle zone of people just arguing. That's all. That's all it is. <laughs> oh, God. Then you know they're they're arguing over this video, and then it turns out to be fake. And all these people are like, no, I'm defending it. And then it, you're defending something that's fake. I don't know. Just all the. The ill-spent thoughts and energy that goes into the some of the stuff it just gets so frustrating, and and you know, and that's what makes the UFO world interesting. Because I know we wanted to talk a little bit about channelers, spirit guides, the contactee movement, um, and that whole realm, of course, can get fuzzy with people that are like, especially the contactee movement going back in the day with people who are potential frauds, but they get followers and they have like some kind of love light and, you know, new age message to spread. And then I don't know, it's, it's fascinating, but what, what did you want to cover with these awesome topics tonight? Well, this is, uh, we can really get into the weeds in this one, but uh, <laughs> what, what, what spurred this is I've always been fascinated by the, the contact D movement and channeling and so forth. In fact, uh, John Tinney and I have, has spent uh, many hours talking about he he and I love the retro UFO lore. Oh yeah, uh, from the more serious to the to what people might not consider as serious. Uh, in fact, uh, I think John is reviving the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. Oh, which is yeah, awesome. Detroit I'm, Flying Saucer Club. I'm currently wearing that T-shirt as we speak. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what. I've got uh, I've you... got mine on too. Oh, that is really weird, Steve. We're my... both wearing the same shirt. 
It's it's my it's my I've got my long sleeve one on. I you got short sleeve. No, it's short sleeve. It's okay. Blue. Well, that's that's pretty close though. That's okay. that'll, that'll pass. Wow. But uh, <laughs> but it was you know I I love I, I I mean I was alive then, but I was you know I was uh, barely uh, old enough to watch cartoons. But uh, it started it started in the mid fifties, and it started in Detroit with uh, the uh, the Bryants, uh, Helen and Reed. Let's see, Reed Bryant. And uh, they uh, they would they would sponsor uh, speakers into the I think Masonic Temple in Detroit, and they would get they had back then you know people didn't know what was legitimate and what wasn't, and of course uh, well they had George Adamski I think was the first speaker, and he of course is the the gentleman that claimed back in the early fifties meant Orthron in the desert, a mm-hmm. California desert, mm-hmm. a, uh, a Venusian that landed in its uh, scout ship, and they had a nice conversation in the desert. And uh, they helped, But they also had people like Edward Ruppelt, who was the actual head of Project uh, Blue Book back in the old days, uh, not, uh, not Dr. Hynek like they portrayed on that awful TV show. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, it was just, you know, in those days and even back when in the 60s, when I discovered this stuff, I mean, I'd be going to the local library and finding any book I, I could. It was it was sort of like a, a golden era for me, you know, just, uh, 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 learning about the stuff for the first time. And uh, it was uh, I mean, there was a time I remember seeing a a documentary on uh, UFOs, I think probably in the 70s, maybe early 70s. And they were talking to uh, uh, the Lorenzans. Um, the Lorenzans started the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization back way back in the beginning of all this. Jim and Coral Lorenzen. And Jim Lorenzen was saying, you know, when this, when this started, we thought in a few years, and that would have meant sometime in the 50s, we would have solved all this. <laughs> but here <laughs> in the 70s, it got murkier and murkier. And now we are way past the new millennium. And we don't know our from a hole in the ground sometimes, you know, <laughs> uh, we really, I mean, uh, John Keel would have told you he did not know what the Mothman was. He did not know, f- you know, for sure he had ideas, but you just, it's, you can't be dogmatic about these things, except that perhaps there's more than one answer to these things. Maybe that's the only dogma we can stay with. Yeah, no kidding. The, out of all of your vintage contactees, who was your favorite? Oh God, I, I love George. Uh, there's a lot of Georges. Uh, George Adamski. <laughs> he he hung out with Orthron, and also he claimed in a, in a that was the uh, the book he wrote with Desmond Leslie. Uh, uh, Flying saucers have landed, and uh, while I'm on Leslie, I've got I've got to mention this, and this might trigger out some more discussion. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about some of these contactees in a minute. All right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Desmond Leslie. Now, uh, let's talk about. Uh, I know I jump all over the place. Jacques Vallée uh, has written uh, Forbidden Science, four volumes. These are his journals. The first volume is the 60s and then 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I can't wait for the other ones to come out. They are fascinating. Uh, They talk about his journey through the the UFO uh, enigma and his uh, his friendship with Dr. Hynek and his... His view of the, the phenomena, uh, the uh, the various individuals and researchers in it, it is just it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, 
So there's, there's one part where he talks about meeting George Adamski and Desmond Leslie. Desmond Leslie was a Brit that uh, his part of the book was about kind of the history of UFOs. And then the second part was George Adamski's claim about beating the Venusian in the desert. And uh, Belay said that uh, George Adamski was a charlatan and, uh, and Leslie was gullible. Well, that being said, I, I found this blog. Uh, Hakan, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, H-A-K-A-N, he's uh, Swedish, Hakan Blomquist blog. This is from November 15th, uh, 2018. Uh, he's, a, uh, he's a fan uh, and was a colleague of John Keel, by the way. Uh, I got Keel in there again. All right. <laughs> uh, but uh, he said uh, he actually wrote a letter to George Adamski. And he says uh, something like, George, all the mediums have suddenly... Uh, uh, they don't, they're not talking about their Indian guides anymore. Mm. They've all replaced them oh, with space people yeah. traveling in Vimanas. Isn't that interesting? That really is, because back in the like the spiritualist era in the 1880s and, and onward even, like a lot of those mediums, they always had that Native American spirit guide uh, that was always guiding them along the way and giving them information and happy to help. And yeah, that transition, that's interesting. It's a very thin line with many channelers between contacting the space brothers or some kind of uh you know a highly evolved spirit being from beyond uh and it, it, it's interesting that when uh you look at some of these uh claims now uh, i started talking about the georges there was also george van tassel george van tassel lived under a big rock yeah, <laughs> yeah, he did. giant rock and uh and this is this is in the same general area that uh george adamski uh would talk to his venusians uh but george van tassel lived under giant rock and actually there were rooms carved underneath and he would hold and i oh imagine being at these he would hold these these huge i think he called them spacecraft conventions um with, they're filled mostly with the contactees, and this was in the desert. He had a there was a landing strip there, and he would he would sell hamburgers and refreshments and everything, and they would have endless speakers from that had you know supposedly contacted all these beings like, let's see, Orfeo Angelusi. I think his <laughs> contacts were from Mercury, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, a really interesting character named Trevor James Constable who uh, claimed that he had photographed uh, sky critters, uh, 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 animals that live in the sky that he captured in the Mojave Desert with uh, um, infrared photography. Now, he also uh, learned, Trevor James Constable, how to channel the Space Brothers from George Van Tassel. George Van Tassel would have these meetings under giant rock and he'd go into a trance and it, the, the tone of his voice would change. And he'd be you know, talking to about all these beings that were flying overhead in their craft and all these really cool names and everything. Uh, 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 James uh, Trevor Constable uh, had long conversations with Ashtar. Now I say, who hasn't spoken to Ashtar right. before, right? He's popular. Um, but uh, the thing is that when you start looking at a lot of these claims uh, of channelers and so forth, there was another George, uh, George Hunt Williamson. He was supposedly one of the witnesses to 
George Adamski speaking to some guy off in the distance in the desert that was supposed to have been Orthron. Now, later on, uh, George Hunt Williamson and uh, Lyman Streeter was another one. Several of these people were supposed to have been contacting the Space Brothers over, over ham radio, radio telegraphy, right? Well, uh, you find out, this is a long story, but you find out that uh, they probably weren't making contact over the radio. It was used more of a literary device, and they were probably uh, using automatic writing, Ouija boards, and channeling to get these contacts. Uh, and then let's move a little, several years more toward the present. And are you familiar with the Law of One books, uh, Ra, the, like the Egyptian Ra, R-A? Yeah. Uh, There's like the five, sort of six volumes uh, of channeled material. Also, I if am you look not at the, personally, Amber. I'm, those are uh, books that I do not own, and I have actually not checked out yet. And that's an impossibility, you realize, Steve, because Amber has I, every book ever published. This is why I love talking to Steve, because every time I talk to Steve, I'm writing notes down about, ooh, ooh a new book. <laughs> ooh, I got to look that person up more. Ooh. Wait, you know yeah. who makes me do that is a, is a great researcher named Joshua Cutchin. He's written books called... Uh, uh, um, where the footprints end. Yes. Two volumes on on paranormal Bigfoot. We're going to be having also, him on soon. Yeah, we are, we're, we're going to be. <clears> oh, he's he's on. excellent. He also wrote a book called The uh, Thieves in the Night, where he talks about the connection, like Jacques Vallée did, with uh, folklore and modern day UFO experiences. But but he that guy, I, I told him on, on when I interviewed him, I said, "You have made me buy so many books because he has this <laughs> incredible." Uh, index not not well not not just the index but the the footnotes to all his sources and there are hundreds of them in his books and i'm looking at this thinking i have to have that i've got it and i have to have the physical book and of course you get to these third-party pirates and that that want a billion dollars for these things and you think oh but anyway yeah so he joshua cutchin does that to me but this back, back to the raw materials it was carla rookhart and uh, Don Elkins. Don Elkins was the facilitator. Carla was the channeler. And uh, there were several other channelers. They had this group. It was called Light Lines, I believe. And I actually have the 18-volume set of these giant books of oh. all their channeling that they documented. And in about the third book is where they were contacting the raw group or whatever they were. And uh, so, but there's the point, my long-winded point here is this. You will find that the those people uh, were contacting some of the same, at least they're, they're hearing some of the same names as George Hunt Williamson did or as uh, George Van Tassel did. And these are people that didn't know each other, you know, before the Internet. They were, they were generationally different, but the same names keep showing up on this channeling. Now, does that mean there's some kind of a reality to it? Or is it, as John Keel would say, that great phonograph in the sky that keeps cranking out the same stuff over and over again? And every once in a while, some hapless dude is going along. He sees the light. He gets a message. And he thinks, I'm the first person to get this, this, this important message, when, in fact, it's been going on over and over again, generationally, all over the world throughout history. So, but, you know, there, there, there are some book channel books that uh, seem to be at different vibrations or whatever. 
I don't know how else to say it, but now there's this one. Are you familiar with Olaspi? Yes. It's like a giant. Yes. Now I can't, I read that and I I apologize to anybody that loves that book and understands it. I can't make heads or tails out of it. It was uh, channeled by John Bellow Newborough back in the 1800s on a typewriter over several years. And man, oh man, I have tried to, uh, I've tried to read like, you know, 10 pages a week until I would get done and I get to a point thinking, oh, my brain can't take it. <sighs> but are you familiar with A Course in Miracles? Yep. Another uh, supposed to be channeled book. But to but, my, and this is my personal opinion, it seems to be something at a much higher vibration. And it, when I read it, it reminds me of the, there was a, uh, a group of religions that surfaced in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was around the same time as the Fox sisters, as the spiritualist movement, as the theosophy movement. And they were called, it was, they were called more the new thought movement. And it was more, you know, it was, it gave, that gave birth to some of the positive thinking uh, books and people like uh, Norman Vincent Peale was influenced by some of that stuff and Wayne Dyer. So there's that, 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 you know, thread there. But to me, a Course in Miracles seems to be cut very much from that same cloth. So, you know, I don't know where this stuff is really coming from. Some of it is is obviously, is probably just coming out of that person's subconscious mind. And there's no uh, author for A Course in Miracles, right? Like, no one... No one takes credit for writing that one. Well, yeah, they did not not at first. That's true, but finally, the woman came forward. I, I can't tell you her okay. name, but there was a book about her. She did, did uh, uh, release the uh, the name finally, and she said that she felt this is her personal experience that she felt like Jesus was was directly dictating this information to her. Well, and that book, out of all the ones we were just talking about, I think that probably still has uh, extremely high sales out oh, there. Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that one's still um, studied. Yes. And it, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that's valuable. I mean, it's just, you know, it's basic, uh, basic uh, self-actualization, positive thinking, and so forth. Let, let, me, let me give you something really weird in all this I, uh, about, you know, channeling and, and automatic writing and so forth. I, you know how you're watching TV sometimes and you're not really tuning in, but then you, it grabs you. And this goes back to, Oh God, it had to be 79 or 80. And it was Phil Donahue was on. <laughs> and this, this is back before his hair turned white. <laughs> and before he started, you know, doing silly gimmicks, like wearing dresses for whatever the show was, you know, it was just a, a great one-on-one interview. And the guy was a parapsychologist and I've tried to find out, who he was, but I, I don't know who he was. But he was—he was just very interesting. And he started talking about automatic writing, and he—he uh, he said that while he did believe that some of the contact from beyond was real, he said uh, some automatic writing. He said most of it is actually coming out of your own subconscious, and he said, uh, "Well, some of it is not." He said you have to be very careful because uh, even though it's coming out of your subconscious, it'll. It'll talk to you like it's something else. And it will start out as being friendly and then more intimate. But then sometimes it can get very uh, obscene and, and, and vicious and even attacking. And I thought, that's weird. See, see, so he said, if you know what's going on, if you know it's just coming from you, he said you can even use it as a therapeutic or whatever. And I thought, 
I, I think I'll go to a shrink rather than uh, have some <laughs> nasty voice coming out of me telling me I'm, I'm too fat or something like that, you know. Uh, but anyway, that, that's one of those things that clicked. And uh, I thought, where, where have I heard that before? John Keel, Mothman Prophecies. In part of the Mothman Prophecies, he's in contact with several individuals that are absolutely certain that they're in contact with some other being or higher power, uh, an entity. And they're get, sometimes they give him them uh, tasks or goals to perform. And they're what, he, they're what he called the silent contactees because they weren't out there on TV shows trying to say, I'm in contact with Ashtar. They didn't care. They were all, you know, it's all about what their, this, this communication was with what they believed this being was. Well, and it followed the same pattern in some cases. Uh, they would get prophecies that would come true. So they would have that, that sort of uh, intimate, that friendly to intimate, but then sometimes they would get the big prophecy and they're, they're got them hook, line and sinker because all these things have come true. And then the world's going to end, bring everybody to the hill. The space beings are going to come down and save you. So they tell everybody come to the hill and maybe the newspapers. And of course, nobody shows up mm -hmm. and they're abandoned. So you've got that same pattern there. There's another, another uh, place up. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Alexandria, David Neal. Uh, magic and mystery in Tibet. No. Uh, about 1910, she is. She claimed that she lived with the Tibetans and that they taught her how to create a tulpa. Oh. And of course, a tulpa is a thought form. Yes. Now I don't know if the story is true or not, but she claims that she focused and she created this sort of jolly little llama. And of course, I'm talking about the sage and seer, not the animal. And this guy was in robes and, 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 and had fat cheeks and was, was chubby and, and, and smiling. And she could only see it. And this would show up once in a while. Then over a period of time, it would become mischievous and play jokes on her friends, you know, push them or pinch them or whatever. And over time, this thing became evil looking to her. It became very lean and had a very kind of evil countenance. <laughs> so again, who knows if this is true or not, but she claimed it took her, I think, several months where she had to kill this thought form that she created with her mind and, and then kill it with her mind again. So anyway, it, it illustrates the idea that, you know, and this isn't a universal principle, but in some of these cases, there is this, this, this sort of friendliness, this seduction sort of, the, the intimacy, and then bang, you know. If you don't know what's going on, it could really be destructive and, and, and be very uh, detrimental to the individual. So I always thought that was that was interesting. The keel picked up on that in this uh, with the contactee movement, with the ones that he was talking to. And here this this parapsychologist was talking about the same. It was a mental uh, experience. It was it was experiencing consciousness. And much of this does seem to be connected with human consciousness. Uh, the Tolpa thing, 
ever since I learned about those things, I, I feel that so many things within the paranormal could be blamed on the concept of the tulpa, especially these these haunted places and locations all around the world. And, and the ones I'm thinking of now that are more like uh, tourist destinations where all these people are going and having these uh, wanting to have these expectations and, and building themselves up and building up what they want to see. And, you know, if that energy gets thrown out into that prison or that haunted house or wherever they're at, I feel like we're just leaving little tulpas everywhere at these haunted locations. And that that the and we've talked about this a lot on our show over the past few years about how much consciousness plays into the paranormal. Um, and, and, and that's just as fascinating on its own versus like if we thought a ghost was just a ghost it's the soul of a dead person or whatever like just what we don't understand or how do i explain this what what we're being being distracted by our cat who's jumping up on the the production table table. but (laughs) what we think we know about the paranormal we don't even know if that makes any sense. Well, it just goes back to what like, I've been, I yeah, what I say all the time too. The more you learn, the more you learn. Yeah. You don't know anything. And because when I and Steve, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. So when you were younger and you're and you're you're digesting all these books and you're going to the public library straight to Dewey Decimal System one thirty three point whatever, <laughs> and you're you're grabbing anything, going you know getting magazines, and you start to form these opinions and ideas about what things are. How is how have your ideas and thoughts and beliefs changed about the realm of the weird since for 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 little Steve and now older Steve? Little Steve was convinced that we were being visited by ET. Uh, they would uh, land, take soil samples, sometimes give us a tour of their spaceship. That's nice. And a little bit later on, they would sometimes give us these. Uh, Medical exams with no <laughs> deductible and no copay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I thought that uh, that for sure that uh, these were definitely ET off off planet. You know, and uh, what I'm doing here is I'm going to, about to cough, so I'm going to find my little thing here. Hold, hold on, just a second. All right. Ah, excellent. I think I got it. And uh, <clears throat> uh, and I was very happy with that too, and and then I read that that strange creature from time and space, and Keel started talking about window areas, and I thought, okay, well that kind of makes sense. Uh, maybe we're talking something interdimensional or whatever, uh, other dimensions. And then I read Operation Trojan Horse, <clears throat> and the funny thing was that as much as I appreciated Keel even back in those days when I didn't. You know, he hadn't written that much. I even saw him on a uh, a TV show one time. I, I used to have these UHF stations, you know, and we, we had on, on Channel 50 out of Detroit. They would have these great syndicated shows out of New York. And he was on with Ivan Sanderson one time on a show. It was great. But anyway, uh, so <clears throat> we my, my buddy and I, we had our high school UFO club, right, uh, back in the old days. And then, and then, uh, we start hearing about this book where Keel is is put pulling everything together, and we thought, "What the hell is he doing?" What's here? I am bad mouthing John Keel back in the old days before I even read his book, and then I read Operation Trojan Horse, and I'm looking at his arguments and so forth, and <clears throat> I had I was convinced that uh, that likely many of these things, uh, uh, psychic phenomena, uh, UFO phenomena. Uh, 
some creatures and so forth were likely connected and maybe have a common origin. And, and then I barely recovered from that. And I read Jacques Vallée's uh, Passport to Magonia, <laughs> where he uh, just discusses various traditions of folklore and mo- some modern day UFO experiences. And so after that, I never looked back. I, I, I you know, began to, to see that these things were connected. And, <clears throat> you know, I was on a, uh, a few years ago, I was on Task Force Griffin and the, the gentleman uh, known as Commander Cobra, uh, he's he's on with me on Mac Maloney's show also. Good guy. Uh, he asked me, he said, it seems to me like you can't, you cannot look at this material without seeing the patterns. And it's true because they're there. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to imagine them. You don't have to force them. Uh, but we shouldn't ignore them. And so that's that was kind of my journey from uh, happy with E.T., and then thinking, oh, no, this is much more complex. Now, I'm not rejecting E.T. or uh, the, the I love Albert Albert Rosales. Do you have any of his books? No. Uh, oh, oh, Amber. Ching, ching, uh, ching. There's only, only gotta, about 15 of them. Oh, yeah. only. <laughs> there's, there's, it's, it's from his database of humanoid reports. They go all the way from 01 AD to 2015. He's probably about due for another book. But the the uh, he documents all these incredible encounters with what he calls the others amongst us, which is a great way to put it. And he gives you all the sources where they come from. It, it's it's a masterwork. And it used to be just a database, I think, online. But but he started coming out with the books, and they you know if you can start getting some of those, they will rock your world. Let me tell you, my UFO collection is slowly growing, and it's something that I've only gotten into like in the past uh 10 plus years and i i i had no idea the scope and the stories and the information within that realm because i was so focused on just ghosts and hauntings and then when i got over into the ufo world i kind of didn't look back and then that's when i started seeing and then obviously talking to people like you um reading anything by keel you you do start to talk about those connections between everything and and now it's like i i just i can't unsee it i can't go back to the way i used to think or exactly. or, or just put everything into compartments it changes your perspective yeah it does and i'm happy about that and i and i think that the more people out there interested in this topic that can keep their perspectives open and be willing to change them I think that's I think that's the best like way to always look at this. Yeah. Well, let me give you an example of a bizarre crossover. Our our friend that we lost a couple of years ago, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, yes. <clears throat> told me one time she was in the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, and she was with I forget who she said she was with, but they were you know how they they do those tours you don't have any flashlights or whatever right. you just adjust to the light and they were in a room somewhere, and. The, the gentleman with her said, Rosemary, do you see what I see? And she said, yes, it looks like an alien gray. They saw what looked like a gray alien in Waverly Hills Sanatorium mm-hmm. in the dark. Mm-hmm. What the hell is nope. a gray doing in a haunted nope. sanatorium? <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, maybe, they're just as in, maybe they're just as interested in places of power as we are. That, that's but, all but, I can really say. 
Well, no, people no. talked about how uh, sometimes people would have UFO encounters and stepping out of the craft would have been a deceased loved one. Now, perhaps the whatever it is, is just cloaking itself. I don't know. Right. But there's these things keep crossing over. You know, I thought of a couple things I wanted to mention about the whole dogman phenomena. Can we go back to that yeah, for a moment? Sure, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> talk about the, the footprints uh, appearing in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's a, an, an, an account in Linda Godfrey's Monsters Among Us in the 90s and Highway 81, Pennsylvania. This guy's driving along this two lane and he notices this light going through the woods and he thinks it's got to be an ATV and he can't believe this guy's driving at night as fast as he is going. And he, he notices that this light's going to intersect with the road, Highway 81. And he's thinking, and if the guy, the, there's kind of a dip where this uh, would come down. And he thought, this guy might hurt himself, or if I don't slow down, I'm going to collide with him. Anyway, the light comes down to the road. It morphs into an upright canid, which just takes a few leaps, and it's across the road. Well, is that what's happening in these areas with these cryptids? They appear as a ball of light, then they manifest and then start making footprints. There was a case in... Uh, near Nottingham, England. There's a canal there. These three kids, uh, this is just a few decades ago, uh, they uh, uh, they see the, the mist coming off the canal. It seems to form into a light, and there's there's sort of like some kind of action going on. The, the mist or light chases, starts to chase after them. They take off. That looks like there's a something forming. And they don't say Bigfoot, but if they see the outline, it's big, it's hairy. It looks like the outline of a hairy Bigfoot, but it's not solid. And so they all ran away, but but two of them saw this. The other one never saw the image of the creature. He just saw the light. He couldn't figure out. He understood why they were kind of upset about this thing coming after him, but he didn't understand why they were so freaking out because he didn't see the creature. So, you know, what, what do these things tell us? Now, there's another another really bizarre connection that I've, I've got to mention. No. Um, again, well, I, I was at a Michigan MUFON meeting and a gentleman there who is a retired uh, professor from Wayne State uh, talked about his investigations into Bigfoot and UFOs in Michigan. Now, this wasn't for general consumption. But he told us about it, and it was just bizarre stuff. Like the, I don't know if you've ever read Jack Lapsaridis and his Psychic Bigfoot or the or the uh, uh, Sasquatch people. Very very bizarre claims of encounters. Right. Well, the one thing I can share is this, and it's one of those things that hits you again. And you wonder where did you hear this before? He said we keep finding these large dog-like footprints Ooh. in these paranormal hotspots, and so I thought, okay, where did that come from? A Mothman prophecies back when Keel wrote it in the uh, in the seventies. He was talking about when he that the, now the uh, the Mothman was seen in the TNT area, which yeah. is north of Point Pleasant, an you know, abandoned munitions uh -huh. area. Now the McClintic Wildlife Area. Back in in the sixties, the old North Power Plant was still standing. So he went. That's where they it was seen. He went there. This is uh, sometime after the original sighting, and. He finds these large dog-like footprints. 
behind the, the, the North Power Plant. And he said whatever it was was so heavy, it had to be two or 300 pounds because of the way it was pressed into the ground. He also, it was, it was a bizarre UFO sighting that same year or, or the next year, just within that year of all the phenomena, uh, west of Charleston in cross, cross lanes. And uh, uh, a guy named Tad Jones is driving to work. He sees this bizarre UFO. doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, sort of shaped like a saucer, but it has legs that come down with like caster wheels on the bottom <laughs> and a propeller on the bottom. <laughs> what, what was it, a 1960s drone or something? Yeah, right. I mean, it, it just doesn't. And it, it also matched the description of a, of a drawing in Saga magazine one time on a, their UFO article. And the artist came, would have come up with this. Uh, there would have been, uh, it, it's almost like the artist came up with it and then it manifested or something. It's just, just bizarre because it, the, uh, the article came out afterwards. There's no way Tad Jones would have seen this. Anyway, Keel goes out there. He finds the same weird little skinny uh, uh, footprints that he might be associated with the Mothman that he found in the old North Power Plant. But he finds these large dog-like footprints out there again. So he consults with Ivan Sanderson. Sanderson says that he agrees. He says, yes, I, I kept finding these footprints in these paranormal hotspots. Now, unfortunately, that's all we get. You know, they're not alive anymore. To, to I wish they could have elaborated, like, well, what are some of the examples? Where did this happen? Uh, so I, I talked to Linda Godfrey about it a few years ago, and she agreed, yes, uh, uh, but she, she did warn me. She said, you have to be careful nowadays because there are people out there faking dog man footprints. Of course and I think, are. oh, great. Yeah. That's all we need. But here's the point. You have four researchers separated by half a century, all telling us that these footprints have been showing up at these paranormal hotspots even before we started talking about the dog man. So what the what does this tell us about this phenomenon? I and I love I love this. This is a perfect place to probably end the show tonight because it brings us back full circle. Yeah. Like every single thing we talked about tonight would seem maybe disconnected to anybody else. Or if you brought them up separately at different times and then listening to them all together in the show, you're like, it's all it's all connected. Yeah. And that there's no doubt in my mind about that stuff. Regardless, it's all connected. Huh, Simply it. put, it's all connected. I, yeah. And I think that how many times we keep just say that every damn show. And I want to keep that point yeah. rolling every show that I and Steve, I mean, I'd love to hear your comments to close on this. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that there are stuff there is stuff happening around us that we would consider anomalous that we can't explain that maybe someday we will be able to explain i think that that isn't the, the mystery to me anymore i'm convinced of that right i think the real challenge is understanding how it's all related what are your thoughts on that let let me uh, let me close with another quote uh, or at least a paraphrase by Ekin yeah. Blomquist, who we we talked about earlier and uh He's, he's talking about, uh, this is, by the way, in that same blog that I quoted earlier toward the end. And he says, how do we know that these visitors are what they claim to be? And he says, uh, my favorite heretic among ufologists, John Keel. <laughs> I love that. He, he put it this way, and I'll quote John directly. Suppose a strange metallic disc covered with flashing colored lights settled in your backyard and a tall man in a one-piece silver spacesuit got out. Suppose he looked unlike any man who had ever seen before. And when you asked him where he was from, he replied, 
I am from Venus. Would you argue with him? From Operation Trojan Horse, page 214. I guess even I might not argue with him. Ghostly talk! <laughs>